so Steve Fisk, welcome. Welcome to the show. Thank Good you. to see you, man. Great to see you too. Really Good excited to, to be on. Absolutely. I'm excited. Long time listener, first time caller. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, and uh, so, so you're the guy who, uh, you know, took my, took my old job and uh, took the keys. And so we have a special bond because Absolutely. Uh, just a few years ago uh, when I was, um, you know, herding a group of cats at the, at the, at the Tampa Bay Wave Accelerator of startup founders, um, you know, uh, you were the guy who I was able to hand off some of my most value treasured relationships and with those startups there. So uh, we always can have a special bond. And, uh, and then I knew, I knew immediately um, that uh, you were probably going to outshine me and they were going to wonder why they didn't have better caliber <laughs> coaching right, right. all along. Whatever you say. <laughs> Flattery will get you everywhere. Absolutely. <laughs> but was it, was, it a, it was a good run, right? It's been a good run. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for, for that handover. It's so great to, you know, when you and I met, but I just moved to Tampa. So I think it was you and I met a few weeks after I moved here. Right. So it was a kind of a really great intro to, to Tampa. And then almost immediately getting involved with on the startup scene um, was, was a lot of fun. And, and as you know, you know, the companies uh, that you were mentoring that I'm, I mentored or am still mentoring have been phenomenal. Absolutely. So at least half of them have just continued to, to climb mm -hmm. in success. And then, uh, you know, the other half we would expect would, you know, struggle and then a couple maybe have to fall off. But that's the startup game, isn't it? Absolutely. You're right. I can't believe how much grit I've seen from, from these companies here. It's, it's incredible. Right. And, and that's what we're going to get into a little bit with your story, because you've got some epic grit stories that I can't wait to uh, share with people. That's why I wanted you to come on, because you came and spoke to my class a couple of years ago. Also, uh, right after that little handoff. And uh, and I and I love when I bring uh, speakers to my class because uh, they uh, I get to sit down and, 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 and listen to these stories. I'm actually for the you know, sometimes for the first time, even though I do a little bit of a pre-call prep with with speakers and even these podcast hosts. Uh, there's certain things that come out live that you just can't <laughs> be ready for, you know, and there's something about, yeah. there's something about wanting, especially with a live room, maybe more so than a podcast like this, but something about a live room of 50 students that are like, you know, glued to your every word that you feel moved to, uh, you know, share as much raw honesty as possible. Do you remember that feeling when you were in the class? Yeah, absolutely. There was a, a lot of great questions, a lot of ones that were, surprisingly pragmatic too for for being college students yeah oh yeah that's right they, they right it's funny I'm, I'm glad you brought that up so i'm always a little sometimes i'm a little cringe because you know i have a founder uh entrepreneur come in and tell this dramatic story of 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 struggle in life and death and up and down and, and big philosophy big philosophical you know factors and then the first question goes up is like so did, when you first, did you form an LLC or a C-Corp? <laughs> <laughs> Things like that. Like, I'm like, but, but they want to get started. They're like, you know, yeah. that's the thing, right? They Absolutely. Started. That's usually why. <laughs> so you remember that. So, hey, I want to throw something up real quick that uh, on the screen okay. that, um, that you might um, get a kick out of, right? So... All right, so we're gonna share the screen and then ultimately I'm gonna throw it up this way. So can you see that, Steve? Yeah. All right, cool, so this is my cover slide for you, okay? <laughs> the theme that I'm throwing out there for us because uh, we had a nice uh, pre-call uh, conversation a few, uh, few days ago. And so, and this is something you reminded me of, something you talked a lot about in front of our class. And 
And, and I remembered how powerful it was at the time and how it just like hit me like a lightning bolt when you were speaking. And I love the, the, I don't know, the, the kind of the, the bold audacity of which you laid this out to the classroom, right? Um, which I thought was just incredible. Um, having worked with, having been that early stage founder myself and worked with so many and see the struggle that they all deal with and what I dealt with and no one had ever said it that succinctly out loud to me before was this idea of advice uh, or feedback, if you will, for early stage founders and this concept of what to let in and, and what to keep out. And it doesn't mm -hmm. get talked about enough. Let me hear your opening thoughts on that. Yeah, well, you're, um, you're a lot more eloquent than I am. So I just always say you, a big part of being an entrepreneur, entrepreneur is learning to go with your gut. You're going to get a lot of feedback from all different sources, whether it's your spouse, your family, your friends, your investors, your customers, uh, your board. Um, everyone's going to have a different opinion on what you should be doing. And one of the biggest parts is learning how to filter through all that for the nuggets um, for to kind of guide you in so that you can do what's best for your company. Because if you take everyone's advice, you're taking no one's advice. Um, so certainly with that, you're gonna have some great advice from key advisors, from different people, uh, different customers and things like that. But really it's kind of a chart of navigating what you should be doing at any given time. And I, oh, go ahead. Sorry to interrupt, but how bad can it get? Like the uh, reason you make a big thing of this is because clearly you got into a really clouded, you, you, you've, you've got your, you, you experienced a really cloudy situation where you let too much in and then you can lose, lose track of your, your own vision. Uh, absolutely. I've been in some board meetings with, with some pretty powerful investors before that, um, you know, they give great advice uh, most of the time, but also part of what they do is brainstorming as well. So there's been some off the wall requests that we've got um, that, that you, you know, you have to know what to, okay, you know, well, let's table that for the next meeting or, okay, we'll follow up and look into that. And part of it too is, uh, you know, the old um, uh, asking why five times. Uh, so a lot of people are quick to give you a solution, but it's really hard to dig into what the problem is. Um, so asking why, you know, several times, uh, the, the key thing is five is um, kind of lets you get to the core of what they're looking for. And also sometimes it's just bad advice. It's not appropriate for, for your business. So as I'm sure you've gone through this with some of the companies that we mentor, um, you know, some of the ones that, that might not have survived. I, I remember explicitly some of these conversations with them as they're kind of uh, on the last, um, you know, breaths of the, the startup and um, complaining. They're like, well, I did everything everyone told me to. All, all my advisors, I did everything they told me to, which is the why first, it the failed. First yellow, the, first, the first flag that you, yeah. yeah. And so, and it, it's funny, I, I've kind of um, uh, given some coaching on this to different people where they're too quick to say yes uh, to different things. I'm probably too quick to say no um in, in certain certain regards but just knowing when to kind of stick up for your guns on, on i mean you're an entrepreneur you're certainly passionate about what you do you're, you're certainly knowledgeable about what you do so when you receive guidance that's out of line in that i mean you have to be humble enough to to realize when um it's the right thing to do but also you have to be uh 
strong enough um, to persevere and say no. We we've had say no say no the uh, the right way as well. Correct. Just Absolutely. That's really hard, right? Absolutely. Um, one good example. Um, um, my my partner at Unikey was great at navigating this. Um, when we were doing our Series A round, we raised uh, a, a pretty large Series A, ten million, and we were in Orlando. And so we're you know the the rednecks in Florida, according to the Valley, uh, who, who you speak there, <laughs> speak to there. So we're talking with some really large groups, and every group tried to make it contingent on us, you know, the funding being contingent on us moving to the Valley, setting up our headquarters there, which as you know, the Valley is so much more expensive. We would have to raise three times the amount of money to accomplish the same thing. And it, it's being here in Florida and knowing what great talent resources and everything that we have that they just aren't um, aware of. It, it was, you know, very difficult to, um, uh, to, Push back. get them to, to realize so we just kind of had to negotiate it i'm like okay well you know instead of 10 million we'll raise 30 million for the same amount of equity well 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 <laughs> so eventually we reached a compromise and we set up an office there um okay so, and then i think that so office has three people so sometimes versus, you have to, sometimes you have to compromise on this kind of quote-unquote feedback and the other thing about advice when it's coming from a source of power i think is something else that i think is important right uh, when your founder or an early stage business owner feels like they have to do, they, they actually have to do or attempt to do, or at least be shown to do what the advice is telling them or asking them to do because it's coming from power, which is usually money. And that's mm -hmm. a very, uh, a very dangerous thing for, for the, uh, for the, for the, for the founder of the company as well. Right. It's easy to blow off, you know, sources that you don't respect or don't, need to but if it comes from a source of of power or authority let's say a really senior mentor that you care or respect as an about it, it compounds the problem with uh with maybe professionally and gently saying no about doing something that you you know is not in alignment with the vision of the company mm -hmm. and a lot of times so that's definitely something that um is a skill that you have to learn and get better with over time. Certain people are born with that, certain people aren't. And so what I found is very useful is you f is finding what really speaks to that person then. So in, um, so in that situation with the investors, uh, you know, they were looking at their bottom line and we had to um, describe it in a fiscal way where they were getting more bang for their buck um, you know, they're investing a third of the amount here versus, you know, three times the amount there for this, essentially the same amount of risk. Uh, and I've had a lot of different situations uh, with that where you have to learn what, what's the key driver for them to kind of demand that and then yeah. um, speak to that for them. Right. Absolutely. So you, the key there is understanding where that person's coming from. Um, but you mm -hmm. said something earlier about brainstorming. And I think it's worth mentioning that just because you have we're not talking about series a investors per se maybe maybe angel or pre-seed round just because they've been successful in another another genre another industry just because they have a quote-unquote a lot of money um doesn't necessarily mean that their pontification and brainstorming and is something you that you should or have to go do because they may or may not write you a check and not to mention the fact that they're probably of a certain age that they may not be still connected 
uh, with the, the problem that you're dealing with. There might be a generational gap. There's a lot of reasons to, a lot of, a lot of territory there that founders have to deal with when especially younger or struggling early stage founders are dealing with next generation angel investors. Mm-hmm. Well, you want to comment on that? What, what, or is that way too, is that, in my, is well, that too controversial? <laughs> So, so one way to look at it too is a lot of times investors will go with the current trend and current fad yeah. and certain ones are great on being on the forefront of what's coming next or not even what's coming next. Um, but like, um, you know, in scientific research, what's bad for you today, tomorrow is going to be healthy for you. So these things that are more fads like the open office floor plan, now, uh, because of the current situation we're in, it looks like we're going back to, well, first we're going remote more, but the offices now are probably gonna go back to a, a cubicle style or office style to keep separation on, on people. But mm -hmm. there are certain things that, um, whether it be a new business model that, that investors don't yet understand um, uh, or uh, technology that they just haven't been able to, to wrap their mind around, it is difficult when you're kind of, on the forefront of a new idea in any respect to, um, to get them to, to buy in. So a lot of times you'll get the advice and sometimes it's, it's the hard advice, you know, where there's um, uh, strings uh, and contingencies on it um, where you have to do things in a, in a way that won't be successful for the business. That's where it gets really tough. Right. Well, we're going to come back around to that after we dive into your story. But first, I want to just touch base with our sponsors. So our sponsor is Secure Startup, right? So securestartup.com is a platform that helps actually early stage founders interact with investors. We just had a whole conversation about this whole back and forth between investors and, and early stage startup founders um, and the documents that need to go back and forth by way of um, the sign offs and the security and the confidentiality and the privacy and just having a really clean, simple place to do that. Right. So secure startup does that uh, for startups and, and actually investors like it too. And uh, so it's something that really, I was surprised there weren't more solutions out there to handle this, but secure startup has really nailed it. And um and so that's a good fit for what we're uh, dealing with today. Do you, do you, do you remember? That's perfect. Do you, do you remember the document dance? Do you remember the document dance? Oh, I still do it. <laughs> it's, it's pretty brutal, right? Yeah. 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 Do you, have a good, do you have a good document story, uh, Unikey document story that just pops in your head where like, you know, you're, you, you're waiting to, you know, get it back and you like, where is the, you know, did they sign off? Did they not sign off or it, just anything like a, like a waiting for a deal mm -hmm. to close, whether it was a document or just being on pension oh. eagles? Well, well, yeah, certainly. Uh, yeah, we had plenty of those. There were times before raising that A round where we, uh, is a few days before the payroll, we didn't have the money for, to make payroll. Um, so there's been, there's been plenty of those times. Um, and the funny thing is, it's you, you've got to go, you know, you've got to go on with business as usual. Um, yeah, if you've got to put on a brave face to this team, right? Mm -hmm. All right, we're going to come back to that topic. So with that, I want to, uh, I'm going to pop back into our side by side. So, Steve, um, I want to get into your, your backstory a little bit, man. So um, I don't know where you'd like to pick it up, but I know that you went to University of Central Florida in the Orlando oh, nice. area. Yeah, right. And uh, the Knights, exactly. Um, and and did you actually uh, fully grow up in the Orlando area or not? Uh, no, I was actually born in St. Pete and then uh, moved 
north of Orlando, a little town called Emberness, and grew up there. Um, so then when I went off to college, I ended up uh, choosing UCF. And, and so what did you... So, what Central did you, Florida. Yeah, Central Florida. So first of all, what kind of, uh, what was your mindset when you went to college and, and uh, what kind of a kid were you? What kind of a person were you? Um... So at, growing up, I was really into art, uh, art, design, and computers, uh, programming. I, I um, set up my first Linux box, I think, when I was 12, first website around then. Um, started learning, like, little bits of programming, middle school and high school. Um, so kind of uh, definitely on, on the nerdier side there. Um, played a lot of sports growing up um, to like to win, but... Um, Sports kind of like nerd. to learn on a, a lot of different things. Sports and nerd, nerdy, nerdy mm -hmm. and sports, sport nerdy. But what sports were you, were you interested in alongside? Um, soccer was the main one, soccer and cross country. Okay. Um, dabbled in a couple others, but those were the, the main ones. So you said Linux. So you were building, you had a Linux box in high school, right? So um, I got to ask, what, what prompted that? Like uh, this was before Reddit or anything. So like, how did you hear about Linux? Because, you know, really Microsoft, would have, would have been the natural thing that a kid would have messed around with the Microsoft platform. You were on the, you were on the lamp, you were on the lamp side. Yeah. Well, so we, we had, um, uh, so we had some windows machines. That was the, the primary thing that we had. But um, as I started getting a look, I like making things. I think that's an easy way to put it. So I mm -hmm. found some basic uh, Microsoft basic programs um, to kind of build out uh, GUIs, and I was want to learn a little bit more, so I kind of dabbled in that. And, um, uh, a, a buddy's, uh, one of my best friend's older brothers uh, helped me set up the Linux box. Still to this day, one of the, hands down, one of the smartest guys I know. Um, wow. uh, so kind of always kept in touch with him, and he's making some cool stuff now too, but just always like building and making um, uh, things, whether back then it was uh, like websites, um, learning about that, um, uh, small applications for the computer. Um, so definitely on the software side, but that was, uh, it was quite a bit of fun. So that was in high school, right? Mm -hmm. And then, okay. So you ship off to UCF, uh, the Knights and, uh, what kind of a college kid were you? What was your college, uh, view, you know, you know, approach? I've worked a lot. I had, I had to work a lot through college. So that was probably one of my main memories of college was just working three jobs at a time uh, to work my way through. Um, I ended up going, I ended up going, uh, getting accepted to UCF to do computer science, but then decided that I didn't want to stare at code all day. Um, and this is back. Uh, it, things are better now, but I'm sure they could still be improved is really showing people what the options are out there. But I just assumed I would be staring at code all day. <laughs> as you know if you get into tech so yeah. Yeah. um ucf has a great computer science school and so i, I kind of selected that but they also have a computer animation school so that was kind of my my way to marry the, the art design with the technology because i was still doing programming but it was to you know achieve a different result um but also still heavily into individuals um right so so you but the computer science program okay so but art so ultimately, what did you end up studying or getting your degree in? I, I have a Bachelor of Fine Arts from, from UCF. So it's, it's kind of uh, always uh, funny that I have an art degree um, when, <laughs> when leading tech teams. Um, right. So I certainly work with some very intelligent engineers, um, and I know enough to, to hold my own. So I'm very light 
on, uh, you know, the deeper technical aspects, but from a high level, I understand kind of how everything goes together and how things should be built. But it's always fun when you get in an argument with an engineer and whiteboard it and prove you're right and just our degree, you know, drop the mic kind of deal. <laughs> did you, uh, did you, so, so why didn't you go ahead and do the computer science thing or you just were too, like you said, you were just too afraid to end up as a coder uh, stuck somewhere. You, want, mm. you wanted to get more out of your college education, it sounds like. Yeah, I think that's a good way to put it. Um, certainly when people talk about education, I think one of the main um, things that's needed is to be able to show all the different options that you have, like pass forward within a given career you know, it was before it was the, you know, lawyer, doctor, engineer, and then with the engineer, you know, there's a whole spectrum of different things you can do. Um, within being a doctor, there's a whole spectrum within being a lawyer, you know, and then there's business and all these different things. Uh, you know, a lot of people think business is just accounting when, when going to college. So um, I, I definitely, uh, probably if I would have done it again, knowing a little bit more, I would have uh, gone a, a different route. But it was definitely fun because basically well, I made movies. Well, my guess is you probably knew you, could, you knew you could, you already knew computer programming and, you know, like I want to maybe add something new to the repertoire while I'm spending all this money in a four-year degree program. <laughs> like you already knew, you already had the computer stuff. For, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go that far. So definitely, you know, uh, studied with some pretty intelligent people uh, as well. So I've always been uh, known enough to uh, get in trouble. Gotcha. So, so, okay, you graduate and what's the first, what's the first job? Um, ended up um, uh, doing some uh, design work for, uh, I, I guess, um, a defense company. Yeah. So a little bit in that, but that didn't last too long. And then shortly after I went to work for a biometrics company uh, in Orlando. So that was kind of my first tech startup that I had ever been involved with. I didn't realize it was a tech startup when I joined, right. um, but that one was a, was a pretty cool one. Uh, my buddy Tommy was working there as an engineer. Uh, Tommy ended up going on to be being one of my co-founders at two different companies, um, but he told me about it. They were looking for someone with my skill set, ended up going into uh, kind of always been a jack of all trades in certain areas. Um, so help out with design, um, uh, web apps and things like that and then um, ultimately came into kind of a, a product management type of role there um, user experience and product management but that company did some really cool stuff um, a lot of uh, biometrics dealing with access control so we did the, the main thing that we did there was um, the world's first uh, biometric deadbolt with quickset so that's a precursor right that's a little bit of a mm -hmm. foreshadow right of things to come later but so it sounds like you again you you kind of came up the art you 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 had a you, you were comfortable with computers and programming but you had this thing for art and it sounds like even graphic design a little bit right mm -hmm. so and then ultimately you found that goes hand in hand with user experience UI UX I would imagine and then ultimately mm -hmm. product manager which the product management ultimately is re representing that user customer user experience so that's the track you came up through sounds like mm -hmm. That's a pretty cool contribution because you you truly understood the technical engineering side of it, but you were able to contribute this, you know, aesthetic uh, UI user experience component. That seems like a really, I'm guessing that was probably a contribution that you, were, you that kept you um, 
it was a really big, a big play for you throughout your career, I'm thinking. Absolutely. And, and um, uh, user experience is still something that I'm passionate about today. Uh, now, just on, on that, I'm higher up and less dealing with it directly and more cohesively for an ecosystem, um, hmm. looking at it from a, a broader scale. Right. And so that's, that's like, you're the guy in the room that, in the team that isn't so deep in the, in the weeds of code that you can actually like, you know, make a, mm -hmm. a, a you know, make us like, Hey guys, gals, we need to like, wait a minute, we're missing something here. Right. Um, yeah. So, okay. So there's that. So that sounds like you were, you know, you were like all of us building, you know, you know, great paying job company startup, you know, but you're, you're kind of, you know, you, like everybody, you need to keep advancing your career and, and you need that, um, you know, that, that career buildup. What, what was next after that? So um, next after that was my, my first uh, company. Um, so I think I've, I've told you before, but this was right before the housing market crisis um, uh, back in the 2000s. So um, 2006, prior to- 2005? Is it 2006, probably 2007? Um, yeah. Yeah, I right. forget the dates. Yeah. Um, so uh, kind of prior to that, there was some signs in the market. Um, so one of those signs were there was uh, a lot of money being moved around. And long story short, the company I was working with was a, a penny or working for was a penny stock. And um, uh, they went through a hostile takeover. I did that, by the so, way. I've been, I did that once. <laughs> I worked yeah. for a stock company. It was... <laughs> We never shared stories on that, but go ahead. Yeah. All I'll say is I learned a lot of expensive lessons for free because it wasn't my company. Um, well, not necessarily for free because uh, we, we took a big hit at, there at the end, but um, it was very interesting. Learned quite a bit. Um, so going through that hostile takeover, we were given an option to go to work for a new entity. Um, and we kind of just took the core engineering team and said, thanks, but no thanks. And we had some ideas of um, something else that we wanted to do. So we took uh, Tommy, myself and our other partners um, went and uh, started our own thing, which turned out to be an IOT platform um, company. Um, so we developed an internet of things platform prior to that name really even taking off. So at the kind of um, early stages from when that technology became more commercialized versus industrial. Um, so back prior to that, it was really expensive applications for machine to machine mm -hmm. um, uh, types of industrial uh, or governmental applications. So it was, we basically took it, made it cheaper and made it so that you could stick it in any product um, oh, to bring so any product were, online. So you guys were, you guys were indoctrinating yourselves in the, machine-based programming, like being able to like get software to talk to hardware? Um, correct, more, more of bringing, um, bringing dumb uh, pieces of technology uh, online. So anything out in the field, anything out dispersed in the field. My favorite example is uh, one of our customers made change machines. Um, this is on far on the simple end, but like making it, change for a five, it, like making, give you, I'll give you. Yeah. And these change end. machines would primarily go in laundromats. These mm -hmm. laundromats were owned by typically regionally, uh, someone would own many of them and they would have someone going 
from laundromat to laundromat on an ongoing basis to, to check to make sure the change machines were working, to see if they needed uh, to have change swapped out, so on and so forth. And so by sticking our platform in there, we tied into um, some different things in the system. They would instantly know how much money is in it, how much they've made, or how much they've changed out. At what point do they need change um, uh, to swap out the change? And then they have a, a real ledger of the amount of money in there. So prior to that, these were kind of dumb systems. Yeah. And so that person going to check and would just shave money off the top since it's a cash business. <laughs> so that that's a really easy explanation of kind of the platform that we had built. Yeah. Well, that's that's kind of the kind of um, when I you know came up the technology route myself, you know, trying to get hardware and software, like get machine um, based, you know, development programming was like a black art, you know, it was a really kind of what the really more advanced developers and programmers would do. And, and all of the rest of us would stay over here in the code world and not touch the hardware world. Right. So you guys were doing that. Firmware is tough. Well, hardware and firmware is firmware. Yeah. Tough. That was the word yeah. I was looking for firmware. Yeah. So how did this company, um, how did it go? Did this company uh, you know, take off and become a huge success? Oh, it's it huge, sold for a couple billion. Uh, <laughs> no, it, it was, um, so we, we ended up uh, raising, um, so we had kind of a proven team. We had product uh, that, that smart lock with, or that um, biometric lock was in Lowe's and Home Depot. So we had product on the shelf. Uh, we had delivered probably 10 other products um, over the course of a year. Uh, for that company. So we had investors uh, to get started and we ended up taking um, a bridge loan to get started and it, we're going to work out equity and everything once uh, the paperwork was all done. Um, and in that time is when the housing market collapsed. So we basically took mm -hmm. loans, started the company, signed leases, and, um, and then um, didn't have any follow-up loans like we were planning on. And not only that, but they turned into real loans that we had to pay back. So um, ended up uh, bootstrapping for a few years. And as you know, that's kind of really where, that was where I got my MBA from the school of hard knocks. So <laughs> learned how to raise money, uh, create business plans, uh, that, that whole nine yards. Um, worked, had some, some phenomenal partners there. It's kind of like a family, um, but you know, slowly just we'd, we'd, we'd off. Um, a family of pain. <laughs> yeah, we, we did some really cool stuff, but Ultimately, we weren't able to, uh, we didn't probably have the makeup of the team that we needed to really make it a success. So where, where did it go from there? So uh, we did a lot to, um, we were developing the, the platform over a number of years and we um, had some engineering opportunities pop up here and there. So we, we bootstrapped, we, we took on uh, kind of engineering service work uh, to pay the bills and most of the engineering service work uh, were great opportunities for our platform too. So we kind of had the two coincide, but um, ultimately uh, ended up having to step away. But at one point, we start up, I start up another company on the side and then we start up Unikey as well. And then uh, we're able to get Unikey going. So I, I fully stepped away. So now, we get, but, to, so now we get to Unikey. So, so uh, this is good. This is good. So were you still one leg in that company? Um, when you started Unikey with your partner or was, and was this Unikey partner part of that group at all? So, uh, so, uh, Phil Dumas, uh, from, from Unikey, he worked at the, um, 
biometric company. So that was where uh, Tommy and I knew each other from college. Tommy and him met there. Um, so Tommy ended up being one of the partners in Unikey as well. Um, so he, uh, Phil was the uh, person in charge um, from the biometric company's uh, standpoint for the biometric lock. So that was his baby. Um, so it was a it was a really cool product. I I had one on my on my door until I had the Kivo prototype um, put there. I I think it was seven eight years. Um, it was on my door, but so it was a fingerprint swipe um, deadbolt. It's the same technology. Uh, it was the same uh, sensor that Apple bought uh, for Touch ID. We we're using the same company uh, for that. So it was some really great technology. But back then, it just wasn't far enough along to accommodate for user error. Um, or different user conditions. So if your fingers were too dry, too wet, uh, if you had lotion on them, if you swipe too fast, like to the side, it just wouldn't work. So well, I just want um, to people don't realize, people don't ultimately realize debugging hardware or what it takes to make hardware be dummy proof and to be just and to just work. It's uh, mm -hmm. we all take it for granted in life things that just work. We don't think about really, really that item originally probably didn't work very well and it needed a lot of improvement iteration. It's really hard to make something work s simply, right? It's really hard. It's easy to make something, yeah. it's easy to make something fundamentally work. It's really hard to make it dummy proof for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So long story short, it worked for early adopters, which are, you know, typically guys 25 to 35 that have, uh, you know, the right moisture level in their fingers. Um, like they would do anything to have it. They would just, they would work around the issues. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they would have to train themselves on it, which is, you know, not a great uh, user experience. So they could show up to um, their friends and be cool. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that kind of had nagged Phil. Phil had gone off to work for a big hedge fund um, uh, prior to uh, that, that company um, going under. And so uh, he, kind of had got his own experience and uh, and kept learning, but it kept nagging him. So as technology started proliferating and smartphones started really becoming a thing, um, he had an idea to do it differently and, and hit me up back, uh, I think it was like March in 2010. And, uh, and so I was like, all right, I'm, I'm, I'm in. Cause you know, I was in that world too. And he hit Tommy up here and there and um, went through kind of an R and D stage. And that was, that was mostly him uh, in those early days on that. Uh, but went through an R and D stage, uh, figuring out working with a bunch of different prototypes. Cause as you, hardware is hard. That's kind of all that it comes down to. And we're replacing uh, your, your door lock. So went through many different prototypes. Um, and so now you see there's a lot of different smart locks on the market with different form factors. And a lot of those form factors were, were kind of scrapped from the beginning because they weren't reliable. Right. Um, so it's interesting that, that some of these other companies have, have gone forward with them. Um, uh, so we kind of went through all that. We had something uh, put together that um, an absolute prototype, not even an MVP, a prototype. And it took probably a year and a half to get funding at that point um, from, from that, like Phil had been self-funding the thing I was doing, uh, my other company in Unikey, um, and and self-funding everything on, on my credit cards, uh, so so my living. Um, but we went through, uh, had investors line up here or there. Went through some pretty shady stuff with some 
uh, not reputable, uh, well, reputable investors that turn out not to be. So learned a lot of lessons that I've since shared with our, our, um, our groups. Um, but it wasn't until we were able to get on, on Shark Tank that that really opened up. Um, raising money in Florida is really hard. In 2010, it was even harder. Um, well, before we get to Shark Tank, um, which is the, the part that everybody wants to hear, of course, and you get, you get, um, you get semi-tired of telling the story, but you got to do it again today. Um, but before we get to that, um, what, are, what are some examples of these investors that were quote-unquote shady without naming names? Like, what, what were some of the, the, the things that happened there that I want people listening and watching to, to kind of like throw, throw, this, throw, throw that on their radar? The things to look out for. Um, so, so it's interesting, uh, things have changed, but, um, they're, they're better, but there's still a lot of these elements out there. Um, so any of the angel groups that we go to in Florida were primarily 90%, 95% service providers that were wanting your money, uh, for things. And then 5% actual investors. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's changed now, yes. but, um, but, but, yeah. uh, I remember those days and there's still maybe, yeah. maybe a few. So I, I go there with, uh, this is back in my first company, I go there with a partner and one of our roles for the night would be to block and tackle or to figure out, sniff out who, you know, were real investors. Um, so we'd kind of have this dance throughout the room of breaking off a conversation and going to someone else. Um, but some of the, the shadier stuff was, uh, we, we, we finally got meetings with real investment groups um, in, the, in the central Florida area. A uh, long time ago, and we'd have a great pitch meeting, and then you know we get a follow up from one of the people that we met with, and uh, someone came to the office and went to talk to us, and they're like, "All right, well, if you want investment from them, I'm gonna have to redo your business plan. It's gonna cost 50 k." <laughs> and we're like, <laughs> "We came to you for money? Wait, what?" You need and so come to before you can give us money come to find out it's an advisor for them as uh, one of their advisors that was in on the meeting that um, was trying, won't sign off until they get the 50 grand to, to even then, even then, business plan. Even then, who knows if that's, if they're that big money is even out, right? Like, so it's a big, yeah. at that point, you, you've got to, you've got to put your own money on the table before you have the chance of possibly getting money. Mm -hmm. Yeah. In, in, in my first company, we ended up, um, uh, paying a, a company to, to find us money um, uh, through a connection we had and they brought on a board member for us and that was it. And, you know, there goes a, a good amount of money. Um, and then there's been some other uh, pretty shady items that have happened. Um, uh, right. In right. World. Really performance matters, right? Like paying for performance or, you know, sometimes you do need help to raise capital, but at the end of the day, um, you, you, an early stage startup, bootstrapped, cash-strapped startup um, can't afford, can't afford those, those kinds of things. And people that will take money from those folks without ensuring that they deliver on value, um, they, they've probably never been a founder themselves. They've probably never been a mm -hmm. founder because they would immediately remember, like immediately remember um, and, and have empathy for that. It just, I just don't know how they would square it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Uh, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, you, would, you would. You would. You would. You would have a hard time with that today, right? Given what you went through. 
Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. It'd be a, it'd be a, uh, a, a non-starter. You wouldn't feel, you wouldn't feel, you wouldn't feel right about it. Um, so, so ultimately, you guys passed on the 50k business plan. Yeah, yeah. So that was my first company, and and um, yeah, uh, had a lot of meetings, and, then, and we were. Any other deals like fall through, or any promise? Any other promises aside from that issue? Any promises of money that like wasn't real, or any other shady stuff like that? Oh yeah, all, all the time. Um, <laughs> uh, mo mostly through angel investors, um, yeah. and, and sometimes it, it's uh, you know uh, an older uh, person that you know that you like each other. And, um, uh, they, you know, it turns out they just want someone to talk with, or they kind of see you as, you know, like, a, a son type of uh, figure and they just want to talk and then nothing kind of ever comes from it. There was, there was they, plenty of that in the early days. They may or may not have the money, but mm -hmm. not as serious about writing that check. If they're yeah. They really love talking about startups and talking with you. And they might even like that. They might even in the beginning, legitimately, um, want to do it, but like buying a big luxury automobile, there's a difference between, you know, I'm going to do it, wanting to do it, feeling great about doing it, and then literally sitting down and writing the check, right? Things, mm -hmm. all of a sudden, you're, when it comes time to actually write the check, you're like, you know what, this has been fun, but I just, I just don't think I can do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, actually, most of the time, you never truly get the no from, from those, uh, uh, those types, but that's something that, uh, you know, yeah, you don't I started my first company when I was, uh, I think I was 23 or 24 when I started my first. So he's really young, really inexperienced. So that's one of the early items that I learned is, is how to navigate that. Because when you're working for a better part of a decade, I worked, uh, you know, 12 to 18 hour days. So when you're working that much, you have to be really cognizant and, and aware of your time. Right. And, and but getting really good at qualifying and thinking mm -hmm. out who is serious and who's not and who ultimately will write a check. I mean, it, again, it goes back to um, the, the, you know, the, it, it, by the way, I used to sell six figure enterprise. Part of my career was selling six figure software, big enterprise software, six figure deals. And we, we always went to sales training. We talked about like, you know, prospects will not, they will lead, they will not, they're not leading you on to be bad people. They mm -hmm. want to buy, they're interested in buying, but they really love the process of learning all about the, you and your options and your product and they'll go through months and months. But if you don't really understand their budget, you don't really understand the decision criteria, whether in an investor case, they might, might even be their wife or their husband, right? Um, if you don't understand the psychological and the parameters of what's behind all that, um, even in big enterprise, like I said, big, even big corporate six-figure enterprise sales, we were, we were learned, we were trained to qualify, to understand what was behind all of that so that when we got two to three months down the line, um, there weren't, the, uh, the rug wasn't pulled and in the, in the, we didn't get the gotcha. And they weren't, again, typically they weren't bad people. They actually had good intentions to begin, but like buying any, but buying anything expensive, anything six figures or more. I don't care who you are, whether you're a company or an individual. It's the most romantic, fun concept. You really love the idea of it, but, but uh, when, it, when you've actually spent all the time with, the, with, the, with it and you've, and you've kind of evaluated it for many, many weeks and months, you ultimately find ways to talk yourself out of spending six figures on something. It's just real. Okay. You feel yeah. me? 
I mean, it's just, it's, it's true and personal and in business. It's true and personal in business. Yeah. And if you don't, if you're not, and so therefore, the only, you, you have to understand like, is this, it's not even, it's more like, A, has this person done it before, which is important, right? But just trying to always uh, understand what does the psychological and budgetary and decision parameters that are way behind what you're experiencing in that first, the first month of uh, courtship. I don't know, mm-hmm. does any of that resonate with you a little bit? I mean, on that? Well, I don't know. They didn't go over that in art school, so. <laughs> There's definitely something I had to learn on the job. Um, that, happened, yeah. that happened both with, uh, for investment and business partnerships, too, um, where a lot of times they're excited about it, but they're not, um, you know, any number of things. But, you know, maybe they just like talking about it more than they, they like executing it kind of deal um absolutely i i just love talking about my old sales training um it's just it's just so parallel it's parallel so much with investor mm-hmm. prospecting so let's let's do the shark, let's do the shark tank thing all right so everybody wants to know everybody wants to always ask me steve this was a shark tank well he wasn't he's company i'm the guy behind the scenes <laughs> he was the guy behind the curtain yeah all right so Which tell us how, how that, i liked it tell us how that came to be the phone call the email whatever so um as I said, we had the prototype done for uh, for a good amount of time, and we're going to different events, pitch competitions, things like that. Um, uh, my partner there is a, a hell of a pitcher. He, I, I believe, he won the um, uh, Ford Adventure Forum pitch competition uh, uh, that year. Nothing really came from it, um, and so we were uh, kind of laying out what the next quarter would be like for okay, which which events are we going to go to? This and that. We were kind of lining it up and. I'm a big Mark Cuban fan, um, followed his career for since I've been interested in tech. And um, uh, I was like, well, I've been watching the Shark Tank thing. Uh, you know, maybe it's worth a shot. You know, it's always one of those things where it's like crazy. Like, I right, sure, you know, put it on the list and we'll get it figured out. And so uh, we go and apply and um, you, you you fill something out online, the application out online. So we got that done. And uh, the part where season one or season two, right? Now. Uh, we, we ended up getting, I think they were on season two at that point. We were on season three. Yeah, but season um, one, the only thing that had been visible was probably season one and maybe in the middle of season two, right? I got it. Yeah. So, so I, I've been watching season two because I think that's when Cuban came on. Um, and so we applied, and uh, this is. Uh, my partner is tenacious, so he um, they'd given him a response, and so he set up an auto email and emailed them every week, following up, following up, following up. So they finally asked us to do a um, uh, a um, an application, a video application. So we did kind of a Kickstarter style um, video application. There's a I had some friends that that ran a, a PR firm in in Orlando, so I borrowed their camera took it over to Phil's house and kind of set it up. The funny part was we were uh, at that point we were planning, okay, if, if this doesn't work, like if it, the investor route doesn't work out, we'll do a Kickstarter. So we filmed the shark tank application and the Kickstarter video uh, side by side. So we did one and um, kind of, it, it was, it was a lot of fun. Phil came from the hedge fund space and I'm like, I, you know, I'm, I'm the slower guy that's more consumer. And I'm like, no, got to simplify that. No cut. Let's simplify it. And so we, we got down to a pretty good pitch, which was pretty similar to what ended up being on the show. Uh, so we'd do that with him in a button up for Shark Tank. Then we'd have him go 
as, as casually as, as he'd get is a, is a polo. So then we'd have him put on a polo for the Kickstarter video. Um, <laughs> and so we did that, sent it off. Funny part was we got, we got rejected from Kickstarter. Um, their response, I think it was a one sentence response. It said something along the lines of, uh, building this will be harder than you think. It was something really funny where uh. <laughs> um, they didn't bother to read the application that we've already built that and they could yeah. go to Home Depot and pick it up kind of deal. Um, oh, yeah. So that, yeah. So that way, was in... A lesson there about having, you know, uh, backup, you know, like always putting two or three things into play at any given time. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So that was in, I believe, May of uh, 2011. Um I think in the summer, well, we applied in May and then sometime in the summer, we, um, I think maybe July, we sent the, in the application tape, got accepted, uh, and then it filmed in August. So I ended up not being able to, to go there with him for that, uh, but went and filmed, but you have no guarantee that if you film, it's going to be on, uh, you have to sign your life away kind of deal. Um, Probably not even supposed to be talking about it now, but plenty of stories have come out about it. And now they've uh, that's your limitation. They, they've they've rectified all that, so I'm, I'm pretty sure they they still you know have rights to my my firstborn children. Um, but it, it was one of those things where you know, it, yeah, you kind of have to take the risk. We we you know had a big conversation about it. And at the end of the day, it's like, well, what what else can we lose here? So let's do it. Uh, so that filmed in August of uh, 2011, but you have no guarantee that the show is going to air. So at that point, um, I'd maxed out my credit cards. Um, I was kind of, you know, uh, doing anything I could. I'm still also doing the other company, um, uh, trying to bring in paychecks where I could, doing side work or, you know, begging, borrowing, and stealing. Um, uh, Phil went and, and took another job at that point. He ran out of money. Um, so it was kind of one of those things where we'd, we'd go and do investor things, wow. uh, here and there, or, you, you know, just did Shark uh, Tank. try to keep it alive. So he had just done Shark, you guys had just done Shark Tank. He personally was there. Uh, he, he, but out of gas, like he's having to go get a job at the, at the, basically at the time that he had just filmed Shark Tank, he was like having to basically work his way. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So he took, I mean, he's, he's a smart guy. It was, it wasn't, uh, it was a, a decent job, but, um, oh, of course, but, uh, yeah, but, so, he, but he wasn't planning. I mean, it, you guys had kind of written off the shark tank experience. You had well, to. Well, so we were actually still going through it. So, uh, on the, so if you watch, um, all five, all the sharks bid is the first time that, that all of them had bid. Uh, we went on it trying to get Cuban and we got Cuban O'Leary to go in on it together. So basically, uh, you shake hands with them. You have a gentleman's agreement. After that, you meet their, their money people and you never really deal with them um, uh, directly again. And then you hammer out a high level term sheet and then you um, uh, sign a no shop clause, a three month no shop clause. So you're working with them for a three month period to do due diligence, contract negotiation, go back and forth with your lawyers. Um, so it's kind of a waiting game and it ultimately dragged out four months before the deal fell through. So I think it was it was probably New Year's Eve, Christmas Eve or New Year's Eve that that year when it fell through. Um, fell through. What do you mean fell through? So it just the uh, the deal changed, we'll say. <laughs> and so the, the, it fell through as in you guys had to walk away. That's what you mean by that. Yeah. So so yeah, we we ended up having to walk away. Uh, we heard reports um, that it might air at the beginning of the season, mid January. 
because uh, we knew it was still, you know, we'd get exposure from it, but we assumed that they, since we walked away from the deal, that they were going to make us look like idiots or make <laughs> Phil look like an idiot. Um, so uh, I ended up taking a job in Atlanta. Um, I waited through January. It didn't, it didn't hit. So we still had no guarantee that it was ever going to air. Uh, so I ended up moving to Atlanta, uh, did some work up there. Uh, Phil was still doing his other uh, gig. And then uh, we got word uh, like beginning of May that, hey, it's going to air in a couple weeks. Uh, I believe it was May 15th, 2012. Wow. And it turned out to be this, the episode turned out to be the season finale. And we ended up being the finale of the season finale. So not only did they not recut it to make him look like an idiot, it was by far one of the best that had ever been on. And he, he dominated, he killed it. And it was the, like you said, the first time in the history of the show that the, all the sharks went in on the deal. Like they all wanted and mm -hmm. they all raised their, their hand. First time ever mm -hmm. in two seasons. So like, from the, the funny, that would be the, the, third, that'd be the third, third season. Yeah, yes. Yeah. We were the finale of season three. Um, so the really funny part is, uh, you know, normally you'd think you'd have this huge, uh, this huge yeah. launch part or watch party and everything, but we were afraid that you know they were gonna it was gonna be embarrassing. So <laughs> it was literally just Phil, Tommy, and I uh, watching this, watching uh, on the edge of your seats. <laughs> well, watching on the edge of your seats. I've got uh, we had set up a website with uh, email sign up so we could convert people over for for an interest list. So I was watching the analytics in real time and, um, but they won't let you put your website on, on, uh, on there. So we we're doing all this other stuff. So it was, it was an interesting time for sure. But after that is when the investors started lining up. So okay. we had probably over a thousand emails from different investors at that point. Wow. Wow. Okay. So that wow. was a big part that came That's from a big it. Big story right there that you had already had to walk away because the terms you know, weren't kept changing, weren't good, or whatever. And, um, but this ultimately became a big PR splash. Mm -hmm. And we were able to sign up a considerable amount of people on the interest list, which we then took um, when we were negotiating our deals as well. Right. So, so therefore, it was a net, a big net positive for you guys. Um, and then, okay, so take me from there. Like, okay, you guys so, are jobs and, and all of a sudden everything's different. Yeah. So, well, yeah. So from there, it's, um, it's quite a different situation. So instead of being, you know, uh, um, begging for money parched in, yeah, it, in the desert, you know, you're swimming in the ocean, but also there's, there's sharks and different things that you're navigating at the same time. So it was still challenging. Uh, we ended up lining up some real estate investors, that we're very interested. We're raising uh, 1.1 at that point, um, and deal fell through. Uh, like while we're waiting for the wire, it fell through. One partner ended up finding something else out, find, finding something else he wanted to invest in at the last minute, and it fell through. I've had that happen so many times where, you know, you're waiting for the wire. Uh, so, um, mm, at, this at that point, we for months of. Uh, of and then you've already dismissed so many other investors and you're down mm -hmm. to this and, and then it, it doesn't come through. Wow. I forgot. So about your story. I was ready to quit my job too. So thankfully I'm uh, composed enough to not quit early. Um, so it was quit to start. And, uh, <laughs> um, quit to so we up, 
quit. I'm like, no, quit. Oh, don't start yet. <laughs> exactly. Yet. So um, uh, we end up talking with some other investors and some that were kind of in the pipeline and we end up finding a, a really great partner and investor. Um, so our lead investor for that round was FFBC out of New York and they've been phenomenal. So they kind of rounded up some other investors to, to finish out the round. And we brought in some others that, that had kind of done that. So, so Steve, at this point, okay, you finally can, you, you guys can finally quit your, your jobs. Yeah. So basically I think Phil had quit his a little bit prior to that. Tommy and I, at that point, we again, working for the same company. We were, he, he brought me through, through to Atlanta with him. Uh, he and I quit, moved back down. So the three of us, that's when the company really started. Um, so from then on, we, uh, we got started, got our office space, um, and started trying to work deals. Uh, so the idea for that company was always to be, uh, B2B and work with different access control manufacturers. Uh, what's now considered a platform as a service. This was in the early days where that wasn't really a thing. So we were kind of uh, ahead of uh, the curve on that. Um, so we, we knew we could do it ourselves, but we also didn't want all the, there's a lot that goes along with it. And we knew we could have a broader reach if we work with partners on it. So we already had a pre-existing relationship with Quickset. We'd been talking with them for over, um, basically since the company had started. And it's a big company, so it's hard to get traction in there. And uh, thankfully their uh, CEO had seen uh, the show. Phil violated his NDA on, on air for it, um, thank God. Um, so their, their biggest competitor Schlage, um, so they hit us up as well. So we were actually negotiating with both of those groups at the same time and leveraged that, that interest list that we had. Cause it's, Hey, we have real customers here that are going to buy this. Um, yeah. ended up doing the deal with, with quick set and sign that with kind of record time. Yeah. And that's, and then, then you leveled up, you leveled up from there. Now, First of all, a couple of quick takeaways, takeaways on that that people should watching this should get, you know, you can't underestimate the, the value and importance of PR or getting a big, um, getting a big coup, a big PR coup. You cannot underestimate the value of that. It changed the whole, um, it changed the whole trajectory of the company. You went from literally on fumes, on fumes, on fumes to almost like, you know, dying to being on TV with a deal that was already not already that was already off the table that completely changed perception and that's something that people don't realize like the perception of a winner I use I, I use the word perception on purpose right like there was no difference between who you guys were before when you were in the nobody would you know give you the time no one would give you you know money and we're screwing around with you to the point where everyone was clamoring for you same guys same technology right the power of perception is incredible and people don't realize that in, in, in the investor community really really moves along the lines of perception and and who they perceive to be uh, a bet a winning a winner and in a, in a, in somewhere to place their bets it's very it's a lot of psychological elements to it. it it's so it's very interesting you say that this is something i, I bring up frequently so um that like that company uh, turning that company into excess success was constantly a challenge. Um, so it was always misunderstood. We were, you know, a little early on uh, that business on that revenue model uh, of platform as a service. Um, 
where so early investors would see us uh, that we talked to were like, well, you're a hardware company that's expensive. We're out. Next thing you know, Nest, a hardware company, gets sold for a billion dollars to uh, Google. They're like, oh, that's great. We're back in. Then they're like, oh, wait, but you're not actually a hardware company. We're like, no, we don't have any of the cogs associated with that. This is a much leaner business model. It'll take us far less money. Now they're, to do all of a sudden, now they're, turned, they're turned off because, yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of, it, it, it's kind of been like that. So they're always, uh, a, a lot of the investors will kind of catch the, the, you know, the current shiny object. Yeah. And you know, um, not, to, not to take too much away that they're, they're, they're doing their very best to, um, to pick a winner, but you know what, that's where Warren Buffett comes in, right? In your mind, my mind, at least, you know, this idea of looking at fundamentals and looking at the team, the, 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 the quality of the team, the tenacity of the team, looking at the, the strength of the technology, the product, the platform, looking ahead at trends. That's mm-hmm. really, that's what series A, obviously institutional investors do clearly. Right. But you don't get to see that enough. Uh, pre-series. You don't get to see that enough. It's an angel round. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Right. Exactly. Right. Um, okay. So we're going to circle the bases here and get us to, to wrap up. So, so, you know, I love the build-up story. The only thing that's missing that I wanted you to touch on is what I remember from your talk that you gave to my class, this, this, when you talked about the fact that it had been, how many, how many years did you go without a vacation? <laughs> it, uh, it was somewhere around 10 years, eight, it's 10 years, so something like that. Um, I want people to hear that, like, especially if you're building a venture-backed company that's basically trying to stand up something very new it's very different than the, you know, on, you know, a business owner that can cash flow and be profitable within the, you know, X number of months, you know, this whole venture back company that takes years to get to where it needs to go. You went close to 10 years without a vacation. Were you counting some of those years, you know, before Shark Tank or was that all post Shark Tank? No, no, that, that was, that was also before Shark Tank because three of those companies had, had kind of uh, blurred together yeah. or overlapped. Um, but, you, really quick to interject. You, I remember this. You were, you were, you said you had maxed out all of your credit card. You had, you had never taken a vacation. Twice. twice. <laughs> you were always like working both ends camp. You had a development team, I think, in India or overseas. So you literally had to work into the wee hours of the morning, and when your development team, and then you had the business hours with your with your partner team, and this went on for years. Yeah. So yeah, there's always something going on internationally. So, you know, uh, late nights, early mornings uh, kind of deal um, uh, for those three companies. Most of the development was done here, but we do some manufacturing overseas or um, uh, yeah. So in the early days, it's trying to get business. Then when you have business, it's on fulfilling the business. And so Unikey, uh, we took it from the two of us um, and then up to when I left, uh, we were around 60 people. So the whole time, you know, when it's just a few of you, you know, you're trying to get business and then you get the business and it's like, okay, what what do we know? We have to hire, we have to build out all this stuff. So then you have uh, issues there. Then you get more business and that's figure out how to work on the company instead of the product. And so we learned quite a bit. And so, um, after we raised that, that series a round, we, um, uh, quintupled the size of the company in roughly a year, probably a little less than a year. 
so then it's a whole slew of other things. So all it is is different types of challenges um, <laughs> as, as you go. It's, and you were kind of the inside man, right? You were kind of, on, you know, you were on the operations side. So mm -hmm. you had to make the trains run on time and, you know, you had to hold this thing up from day to day to day, right? Um, yeah, so the interesting part is doing all that and then figuring out, like, you're trying to make sure that you're meeting deadlines for, for your customers, building out this, like, I think at a certain point we had more projects than we had people because um, mm -hmm. there was so much going on, so much, so much interest um, that you had to f kind of find a way to um, handle all that. So you're also trying to build the company in a way where it will grow uh, to accommodate um, yeah, and by the way, amount. your personal life was completely non-existent as well, right? Like no girl, like barely could keep a girlfriend, probably definitely not married. Well, uh, I mean, I, I was pretty young when I started, so <laughs> thankfully you don't need a lot of sleep. Uh, so I, I definitely I mean, had a good healthy social life. I'd sleep but, three or four hours a night. Yeah, but I mean, but, but it was hard to like have a, I would imagine it would have been hard to be in a serious relationship when you were married. You were married, to, you were married <laughs> to the company. Yeah, extremely. It's even tougher, too, when you can barely afford to support yourself, too, and, uh, you know, figure out how to take someone on dates or, you know, uh, things start getting serious and figuring out how you start a life with someone when, you you know, all you have is debt. Right. It's uh, it's an interesting one. I've, given, I've thought about giving a talk on that, actually, because I've talked with some other people that have been in that situation, and it's it's an interesting one. It really kind of messes with your head. Um, and it's, it's a challenge. And, but the thing is, if you find someone that can support you through all that, that's, that's uh, just as important as the co-founder in your company. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and not to mention, not, not only were you light on, on, on funds, but you were light on attention span probably too. Yeah. Like, yeah. Family gatherings and have my laptop at it. I'd be on like step out for calls and yeah, my, my family are troopers for sure. People that, again, building a venture-backed company, just people don't fully understand this very much. It's very romantic and obviously sexy in a lot of ways, but people don't realize, especially if you have to go to hard road, you guys went, um, you know, build, building a traditional business um, as a founder entrepreneur uh, is also hard, but um, it's just a different, it's just a different animal. Um, and you're, and you're, by the way, uh the you know you're fighting for survival like you know like every year trying to climb the mountain right if you don't mm -hmm. climb the mountain you don't win right very different than than say another type of you know localized startup venture right you don't climb the mountain you don't get there you don't win it's like almost a zero-sum game in a way yeah, definitely. Are, are you saying whereas uh, you need the next round of investment to survive? Oh, yeah, I mean, or... like compared, I mean, like compared to someone who wants to start their own business locally that's not looking to be venture-backed high growth, right? Like, you know, a, a, an entrepreneur mm -hmm. that just wants to start a very profitable services-based business or even a mod mm -hmm. modest product-based business, right? It's not a zero-sum game for them, typically, right? They're just traditional, Correct. right? You were in a zero-sum game environment where you didn't build it to be a big success that's how that works especially once you get through your series a mm -hmm. yeah those those two types of companies operate very differently although I've, I've always been and my partners have always always been very uh kind of frugal and very realistic minded in everything that we've done so the goal is always to build a um, self-sustaining profitable business not one where you need to raise 100 million to you know make a dollar um right 
so we we've always had that viewpoint on it and we've done pretty well on it i'd say right so were you guys pro wait, wait a minute back up were you guys profitable along this along this path uh <laughs> well so profit's a funny thing when you're doing a high growth tech company so like if you slow down growth, then the profitability comes. In other words, play. you could be profitable if you wanted. Yeah. To. <laughs> right? yeah. Got it. Well, Steve, I'm gonna we're gonna wrap up because I want to get to our apartments, and that's how we're gonna wrap up. And man, thank you for sharing all all that detail. And I, I've been always wanted to memorialize your story more than we had before. When and so luckily we, we've got this recorded, and and we can and people can learn and hear this this experience, um, and be and think twice before they build a venture back to high growth company <laughs> uh, it's a lot of fun and by the way doing something and by the way we had, we talked about this last time and doing something that is really new and innovative that's the other dimension that was going on mm. here there's a lot of venture backed high growth companies that yeah they're being disruptive and innovative but not trying to completely disrupt and change consumer behavior Mm -hmm. and get them to do something that they're not used to or comfortable doing. That's a whole special upper spectrum category of not only risk, but intense zero, like I said, zero sum game. Mm -hmm. That that part was was really interesting. We, we kind of, uh, we were one of the early companies in that space um, uh, with, with Unikey. So we essentially started the smart lock market when we uh, kind of showed what we were working on on Shark Tank. I, you can actually map out the different companies starting to to that episode. It's it's kind of flattering. Um, Very much. Uh, so that that was always in, interesting, where you have a new way of doing something, you have to convince everyone else on it. Um, but the really cool part with that was the different companies we were able to partner with along the way. So we were Nest works first works with Nest partner on that. Um, so it was really great to be able to work with them because at that point they had been. Um, acquired by Google. So kind of getting that exposure, worked with Samsung, Google, and those guys, and then ultimately uh, helped Apple um, uh, spec out HomeKit. So it was very cool to be on the cutting edge of that. But there's a lot of, uh, learned a lot of lessons by being, you know, the first in the space, uh, for sure. So the, the second, third companies that, that came after were, were, you know, had advantage of being able to see what worked in the market, what didn't. Yeah. And also all those ready-made customers that you, that you built up for them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. By the way, this is a great segue to I apartments. Um, All right. Meaning like, meaning like, let's not let's not necessarily be first. Let's be um, let's be uh, let's move in when the market is ripe and really is really wants like is frothing and like clamoring. <laughs> right. This, that's kind of cool. I would imagine. So talk. Yeah. So. Yeah, talk about our apartments and, and what and what our apartments does because this is the coolest. By the way, of everything we've talked about on the show so far, that everybody at this point they hung in there like, oh my god, I don't understand all this, but they're about to <laughs> they're about to understand the following. So, uh, so I'm co-founder in I Apartments. We're a smart apartment company. So we have created a, a whole smart home ecosystem specifically designed for apartments and multifamily. So residents get something cool that they can play with uh, on the front end. They get smart, uh, smart thermostat, smart lock, um, uh, different smart devices in their apartment, smart plugs and, and switches and that sort of thing, um, which on the consumer end, on the single family home end, people are used to being able to go out and pick that up. But that's not really the case in, in um, apartments. So the resident gets something great. They get keyless entry. 
uh, kind of all these new modern uh, accommodations that, that people are getting used to um, outside of the multifamily world. And then also that same platform works with different sensors in, in the apartment in every unit that help out the management company and the, and the owner uh, of the unit, help them protect the assets. So we have leak sensors that are strategically placed. We have humidity sensors and different things where we can help detect uh, mold growing conditions and, and, and leaks, which those are the top two loss leaders in that space um, uh, as, as far as uh, catastrophic loss is concerned. And then also now that you have keyless access, um, uh, the site team, the maintenance people and, and that sort are able to be a lot more efficient in their day. And we have some other things coming as well um, to really make that more efficient and then protect other assets. Uh, so we're getting into air purification uh, right now is a very hot top hot topic. So we're getting into that pretty heavily, as well as other preventative maintenance for their HVAC systems and, and that sort of thing. And it's so cool to know you, man, for two reasons. One, to see somebody basically parlay that amazing experience with Unikey and all that hardware, firmware, IoT stuff that you did for so long and you, you blood sweated and teared your way through all of that to now be able to, to now step into this, um, um, into this smart home, smart apartment world. And, you know, you can almost, I can almost blindfold you right now and you would be able to like, completely like ninja your way through this because it's almost like you know neo in the matrix like this is like now like this is your world and like you you did the hard the hard stuff to be able to now bring all of that to to the masses and i say the masses because let's be real the masses they're in apartments more so than single family homes now i would probably you're i don't have to tell you that and I'll be the make breaking news, but once you get this I apartments being completely explosive, uh, I would you know I'm waiting for you know your uh, venture that comes in and outfits my my single family resident home. But uh, that's yeah. I'm sure that's on the roadmap down the line. But what a beautiful thing to start with the apartments because you get you get these you get these economies of scale, and you get mm -hmm. the fact that you have the the the, the management uh, companies that a have the buying power to do it and have the incentive to get all the roi out of it um and you get to have these big bulk client purchases that you wouldn't get with single family homes it's brilliant yeah from, from a business model standpoint it's definitely great in that respect it, it makes things a lot more stable uh, as, as well um for for sure and it was a great uh, uh so I, I partnered um uh with a multifamily uh, veteran um, that started up several companies in the space. So I've learned quite a bit from him on that. And it's been, it's been a, a, a phenomenal partnership. Um, so being able to re-leverage my different smart home um, contacts, my different access control contacts um, and, and relationships. Um, and then back here in, uh, in multifamily. So the funny thing is we actually did pilots for this back at Unikey. So in the early days, so you mentioned there are kind of incumbents in the space now, but prior to that, we had done some some pilots with Quickset and Nest and kind of um, uh, grouping those together. And we we definitely, um, you know, learned a lot of lessons on it. A lot of the shortcomings that that all the players in the space are, are seeing now, we experienced years ago. So um, 
uh, we've crafted something that kind of alleviates all those issues and makes it a seamless experience for both the residents and um, and management, which is for a user experience person, it's paramount. Right, right. And so, so like it's a little bit of a dream team situation and uh, I just think it's amazing. I love, I love what you're doing. I, I remember when you were secretly working on something about a, a year ago and you were like, I'm working on something, and, you know, all of us startup guys, we, we all kind of throw cryptic comments to each other. When yeah. I was working on my book, you know, I, I was throwing cryptic yeah. comments to people you know, because we still, we all trust each other, but we don't want to give away the power of what we're working on. It's not that we, it's like, it's almost like when you tell somebody too soon, it's like you're, you're giving away a little bit of the power of it, right? I remember you were, um, you were cooking up something and when you finally revealed it to me, I was like, oh my God, that's, that is perfect for Steve. And then he partnered with somebody who actually has this similar background. And, and I'm going, man, um, this is one of those things that uh, is, a, is a sure, is a sure uh, win. And um, it's just really cool to see, man. Congratulations on not only all your success in the past, but like even picking something so, so well and crap. I see bad picks. By the way, the reason I make a point of this is I see, I see second, third entrepreneurs uh, make bad, make bad picks. Me, meaning like, you know, this, this is a very strategic move on your part that not all of second, third time founders are, are able to pull off. So it, it's interesting. Since I left Uniki a few years ago, I've had, I mean, in the first year after leaving Uniki, I probably had 25 real opportunities come up. And as you know, I took, I took some time off um, to have a vacation and relax. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but through that time, I kind of vetted a bunch of these out. And so I've had many more since then. And um, I got some great advice that I was already following. I didn't realize it um, after Synapse last year from one of the, uh, the investors that went on screen. I talked to him about kind of my background and what I was thinking of doing next. And he's like, look, you're gonna have a lot of opportunities. Just sit on your hands, sit on your hands, sit on your hands and wait for the right one. And when it did, it, it was, it was uh, a hot and heavy romance. Basically, it's you meet someone out of the blue and Dave and I met for a 30 minute meeting and a 30 minute coffee and it turned out to be a three hour meeting. And next thing you know, we're meeting for hours a day, uh, kind of hashing through things. Mm. Uh, and then, you know, we, we got it going. And so the nice part about being veterans though, is what we've accomplished in a short amount of time would have taken you know someone else a few years to do um so we're able to kind of cut out a lot of the learning curve that i've had prior he had prior um a lot of the fundraising obstacles um, that, that we've had in the past and, and really focus on creating a product and, and working with customers right so that, that i'm glad you i'm glad we you got to that point because that was something else that you shared with me that i thought was really powerful is this this idea of, of passing on opportunity? Like you said, I not only did you get you know 25 opportunities since Unikey, but they they were coming. You got a lot at the beginning, but they continued to trickle every month or so. Another opportunity was coming. Even when you took over the Tampa Bay Wave, and you and I have stayed in touch for the last two years, you were always getting new opportunities trickled your way. And this ability to and by the way, some of them were attractive and some of them were flattering and some of them were very interesting, mm -hmm. like, and to wait, to be able to wait uh, for the next right ship to come is not only tremendous discipline, but um, is really the key to the key to big success because frankly, opportunity costs 
is a huge thing. And to anything you would have, anything you take on, and this is something that everyone should hear out there, anything that you take on is an opportunity cost for something that you can't take on later. So think very, think very, and I watch this happen a lot. I've been victim myself. I victimized myself, right? Of, uh, of you know, moving in on something strongly. And next thing you know, I'm in a six to eight, 12 month, 18 month or more commitment into something because I, I follow through on my commitments like all of, most of us do. Mm-hmm. And therefore, a lot of, now a lot of things are off the table and I have to follow through and see this through because once I've, and you know what, you get in X number of months in, you look back and you go, I was, I followed my heart a little bit too much on this. And then by the way, all these other amazing opportunities now, um, you can't pursue. And so waiting and waiting and waiting, even when it hurts, seems like I, I guarantee mm-hmm. you of those 25 or so, a couple of them almost got you. Yes, a- absolutely. Um, <laughs> uh, they, they kind of ranged across the board, but some really had hair on them and, and some, you know, some were, were pretty incredible opportunities um, that mm. just weren't weren't right. Yeah, and I would imagine there was probably a couple of times that you even you can't credit yourself for passing. You're probably some kind of circumstantial situation. You oh, know, for, yeah, for sure. Work out, and you're like, thank God that didn't happen. <laughs> you know, um, yeah. Steve, this has been great, man. And I want to wrap here. Um, I I just this has been awesome, and I'm really I've been wanting to pull this story out of you for a while and get it officially on record and uh hope it you know hope you hope you're glad that you did the interview um yeah absolutely i've, I've been really excited watching these uh I, I think i told you the other day i, I caught the first uh, couple and I've, I've been watching them uh as many it. as i can since then well we're in good company because I've, I've i've been lucky enough to book some other interesting folks that are lining up and i'm just uh, very blessed and very uh, very fortunate to have um such uh, you know um good friends and network that um that will come on to this uh, podcast with me and thank you very much and uh and again like i said in the beginning i don't know if that we got it on the recording but um i feel like you're the closest man to iron man that i know and, uh, and uh, I mean, like, I don't know, I'm not like, I feel like you might have this. Aside Iron- from Elon Musk. <laughs> you're either Iron Man or you're Batman. And I'm not sure. I'm not uh, sure. Uh, probably, probably more Batman. Might be more, more Batman. Okay. Yeah. Um, because you know, you're still, you, you, you're, you're, you've got this youth and you've got the success and you, and it's really um, pretty cool to watch and, and to know you. So thank you for, for awesome. doing it. Thank you. That's, that's very nice of you to say. I'm, thank you for having me. I've, I've been uh, watching him, so I was excited uh, when you asked me to be on. I'm going to keep building the legend of Steve Fisk. <laughs> <laughs> no complaints here. Hey, thank you so much. We're going to sign off. and sound good? Sounds great. All right. Take cool. care. Until next time. Thanks, Al. All right.